Hello. Welcome to What Comes Next. My name is Andrea. And I'm Shane. And we have a special guest. Uh, we're talking today to Dr. Bluban Lagner. So I'm going to uh, do a short intro first. Um, Dr. Rachel Bluban Lagner is a Laura and Isaac Perlmutter Associate Professor of Reconstructive Plastic Surgery in the Hans Jorg Wies Department of Plastic Surgery at NYU Langone Hospital in New York City. Um, she completed her residency at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Plastic Surgery. And now she works primarily in the field of gender affirming surgery, offering phalloplasty, vaginoplasty, and top surgery for trans and non binary people. Hello, welcome. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's very exciting to be here. I know. I'm so excited. Yeah, we're super excited. Yeah. So I'm going to just start off just getting right into it. All right. Yeah. You ready? <laughs> Go for cool. it. Cool. All right. So what were you like when you were younger? Where did you grow up? Uh, what were some of your interests? And did you have any hobbies? So I grew up in Philadelphia. I grew up actually in the city in Philadelphia. And... Hobbies, interests, I was forced to play the violin okay. by my parents. I'm not sure that that's a hobby because <laughs> I didn't love it. Um, and then in high school, I ran track and played field hockey. Mm -hmm. And those were the things that I sort of dedicated myself to. Did you do a lot of traveling or anything like that when you were little? or As a kid, we didn't move around. I was... We lived in the same house, and my parents lived in that house through college and medical yeah. school, actually. And um, I traveled a bit when I was in, I guess I was 13, and I lived with a family in France, and then um, she came and lived with us, and so learned French that way. Oh. Um, and then with my Latin class in high school, traveled to Greece and Turkey. Um, and then in college, would save up and do a little traveling. I didn't do travel abroad, but would save to explore the world. So enjoy traveling. Cool. Did you start your undergrad with the intention of going to medical school? I thought I wanted to go to medical school all along. I wasn't totally sure, so I did major in classics so that I didn't rule out um, the arts as an option. Mm -hmm. But I, in high school, I thought I wanted to go to medical school, so I worked in a lab. We lived not far from um, the University of Pennsylvania, and so I worked in a lab there and worked in that lab through college, uh, but took the required sciences, but then majored in classics. Cool. Awesome. Um, so what was your first exposure to the LGBTQ community? Um, so I guess the way I got into gender-affirming surgery, and then now it is really what my practice is dedicated to, was my mentor suggested, I was interested in craniofacial surgery. I didn't want to necessarily do pediatric craniofacial surgery, which is the more traditional um, form of craniofacial surgery. And he said, have you read this book by Dr. Alsterhout? And that was um, the book on facial feminization. And so I gave a presentation on facial feminization and I was fortunate enough to be in Baltimore at the time, and there was um, Beverly Fisher, who had a very large practice dedicated to chest masculinization. She was really one of the pioneers. Um, and so learned more about that. And as I began to explore gender-affirming surgery more, um, I realized that this was the embodiment of plastic surgery. It was the restoration of form and function. You went all over the body. You used reconstructive techniques. You used 
um, microsurgery, use craniofacial, there is um, aesthetic components to it, and most importantly, there was a real opportunity to make an impact on somebody's quality of life, and I felt that it was really quite rewarding and humbling to be able to be a part of someone's journey. Um, so that was sort of how I came to be in it. Although training specifically in gender affirming surgery was hard to get. I did a microsurgery fellowship so and microsurgery and craniofacial, so I had the fundamental techniques. But the specific operations, there weren't a ton of people doing it here in the US. And so I traveled to Thailand and Canada to really get additional training. That's so cool. I didn't realize you'd had to do all that. So when you were uh, like a small child, yeah. uh, where did you imagine you'd be at this point in your life? What did you want to do when you were when you were little? Gosh, you know, I'm not sure. I did probably around the age of nine. We had good family friends, and she was a pediatric pulmonologist, and I thought that's what I wanted to be, a pediatric pulmonologist. Now, I'm in medicine, but a little bit far from pediatrics and mm -hmm. pulmonary. <laughs> so, yeah. So you you just mentioned that you wanted to go into pediatrics, at least when you were younger. Mm -hmm. When you went into med school, what did you want to specialize in? Um, so I began medical school thinking I'd still do pediatrics. And then um, the summer between our first and second year, we do research. And I did research actually in urology. And strangely mm -hmm. enough, I still have urology as part of my practice, an integral part of my practice. And I'm really fortunate to partner with a wonderful urologist. But I did research for that year. I did what we call a sub-internship, where I spent a lot of time in the specialty. I thought that that was what I was going to do. And then met my mentor and realized that plastic surgery was a better fit. Um, so switched specialties. Cool. Awesome. So how has your technique changed as you continued your practice? Uh, what do you think you're getting better at? And is there anything you want to improve on still? So I think there's so much opportunity for improvement in all of these operations. Um, the field is limited, I think, because there hasn't been a tremendous amount of um, rigorous research. Um, it's really single surgeon experience. It's not prospectively studied. Patient-reported outcomes, I think, haven't been necessarily outstanding, and in part because we don't have the tools. but. We also haven't necessarily involved patients in that data collection and finding endpoints that are meaningful and important. Certainly, you know, to begin with, we were trained, and when I was trained, you know, see your patients frequently, talk to them about what they like about the operation, what they don't like about the operation, um, and always look at your pre and post operative photographs. So to begin with, you know, the aesthetic portion of the operation is important and I look very carefully at my pre and post op and look at things that I could have done differently, set the markings differently. For example, with chest reconstruction, you know, how to best follow the uh, pectoral shadow, where to best place the nipples, what size they should be. And so over time, adjusting that, getting better, having a keener eye. With vaginoplasty, for example, I think the struggle in that operation aesthetically is to really define the labia minora, have well-defined three-dimensional labia minora. So how to modify the technique to improve that. 
you know, with phalloplasty, the aesthetics, the glandsplasty, the flattening of the glands remains an issue. So what can we do to improve that? And then, gosh, with regard to function, there's, you know, one preventing complications. So really looking to see if it's a technique or if it's suture material or if it's aftercare. Um, so there's that component. But then also looking at function, sort of what are the components of function that are most important to patients? And so, for example, phalloplasty, every phalloplasty is not the same because everyone's goals are different and how to best counsel people, to best understand sort of what they are telling you they want and then you delivering that. Mm-hmm. It's actually um, interesting because that's probably the reason why you were like the top of my list when I was looking for surgeons was because of the fact that you did have so much attention to detail and you were vocal about how you're like, these are the advancements I'm making. You know, a lot of times you see a lot of surgeons that are out there and they have their website and they show you some before and afters uh, and they're like, this is the product you get. You know, it's like a used car salesman. They're like, this is the car that you're going to get. Um, but with you, I, I never felt like that. I always felt like you were constantly trying to like raise the bar higher for like everyone around you, including yourself. Well, thank mm-hmm. you. No thank problem. you. Yeah, definitely like a very specific attention to detail. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So pivoting a little bit, um, we wanted to ask if you experienced sexism in your field and um, if you're willing to share like what that looks like and how you sort of overcome it or handle it. Um, Certainly there are not a lot of, there are more women in surgery now, but I think when I started um, in surgery, there were no other women in my class, certainly in plastic surgery, and there was one other woman in my intern year class, my first year class, and certainly there aren't a lot of role model, female role models. There aren't a lot of women in plastic surgery that are at the higher levels. I think that I'm not sure that I specifically um, experienced sexism or um, treatment that was different. Um, certainly one of the issue, you know, if you were to have a child, carrying a child and being pregnant while operating is a little bit different um, just because there's the physical, it's physically taxing mm-hmm. and then you're doing a semi-physical job. Um, I think the important thing is for women to help one another. Um, you know, to make sure that you create, and that's, and it's not just a gender thing, but just to make sure that your environment is inclusive across genders, across race, across age, across socioeconomic backgrounds, um, to make sure that everyone's voice is heard, that their perspective is heard. Um, so I can't think of a, I'm fortunate in that I can't think of a distinct incident where mm-hmm. I felt my career was compromised or my trajectory was in some way impaired, but it does exist and I think it's important that we are aware of that and that we empower those in training, Mm -hmm. regardless of where they're coming from. Yeah. So um, you co-authored an article, Shane, you asked this question because I can't speak right now. Um, (laughs) You you co-authored an article titled Ethical Issues in Gender-Affirming Care for Youth. Can you expand on that a little bit? 
So I, um, this was an interesting um, article. I was just a, again, co-author. I was sort of buried in there. I shared my thoughts on, I think, really more the importance of surgery and why we need outcomes um, to demonstrate that the surgeries are incredibly powerful, meaningful, impactful, and important. Um, I think one of the criticisms of that article was actually that, that they use something called a, they use the word registry, which can be very triggering. And I think it's not to, to we should be careful that it not be misinterpreted. And like this was a group that was really invested in de-identifying data and showing the very positive impact long term because I think some people are concerned that we don't know the long-term impact of um, offering treatment at such a young age. And I think um, many of us who do treat youth do recognize the value and the harm reduction by providing intervention earlier rather than later. But like with anything, you want a longitudinal study, sort of like with um, congenital treatment of heart conditions. Um, these youth will age and their needs when they're 30 will be different than somebody who's beyond treatment at the age of 30. And what does that look like? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, How do you see access of gender-affirming surgeries changing in the future? Well, I hope that it continues to expand. I'm hopeful. I certainly was fortunate actually to be at the beginning of my career when access expanded and literally in 2015 there was a huge expansion in coverage and access to that and that's only continued to increase. I recognize that we live in a state where many more people have access to care than in other states and I think that that is where we need to begin to focus remembering that there are still states where people don't have access to coverage and don't have access to affirming providers. Uh, so I hope that we continue to expand coverage and that we continue to train as an, at an academic medical center, that we train affirming providers. Even in plastic surgery, we will train residents to do gender affirming procedures. But beyond that, it's important for anyone who is in medicine, nursing, physicians, social work to just be aware of the medical needs of somebody who is transitioning. So we wanted to ask what's the toughest part of your work? <laughs> uh, I think the hardest part of this job is uh, making sure that patients' expectations are met. And it can be disappointing when you feel that despite your best efforts, their expectations haven't been met. I think it can also, it's also can be a struggle to sort of separate that gender affirming surgery is so powerful and impactful, but really treats just one small part of your life. And that may be the dysphoria related to a certain part of your anatomy, but that there are other aspects of life that may continue to be difficult. And it can be frustrating as a provider not to be able to 
necessarily solve those parts. Do you feel like you often have to like reset expectations in like preoperative visits and things like that to kind of tell them like what you're expecting isn't maybe possible or or maybe not realistic or I I think every provider every physician is going to have a different approach to counseling patients um, one thing that is that most all of our patients are incredibly well informed mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they come with all of the knowledge they have done extensive reading they have talked to people they have done their research on the internet they're well informed about all the options they've dug deep inside and they know what they need for themselves and I think it's sort of at least I feel it's my job as a physician to make sure that um, I continue to prepare you for the best things and the worst things about the surgery only because a prepared mind is a better mind and that the hope is that this will go off without a hitch you'll have not a single complication you will be completely thrilled But if you did have a complication, if something was a little bit different than what you envisioned, if you knew that ahead of time, I think you're able to process that and deal with it a little bit better after the fact. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What part of your work do you find the most rewarding? I think that, honestly, grateful patients and the smile that you see on somebody's face um, after surgery, the stories that you hear about the struggles that they have before surgery that have sort of disappeared and flown away, um, those are the things that keep me going and motivate me to continue to strive to improve the field, to improve my own operations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's pretty incredible how much gender-affirming surgery can like change someone's life outside of like what's going on here. It must be nice when you hear people like tell you about that. Yeah. So we had a, a podcast that we did or an episode that we did recently about just our, our experiences with surgeries. And one of the things that people don't realize is how like humbling recovery can be because you mm-hmm. become so debilitating and like mm-hmm. you sort of have a new perspective of life, you know, like I remember when I had my facial feminization surgery, I was just excited to breathe out of my nose again. I was just mm-hmm. excited to eat again, you know, being able to walk and go to the bathroom on my own. Um, so I'm sure like you see that like anxiety and then you see that like worry and you see that struggle and then at the end of it, it's like that that explosion of euphoria. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really exciting. I think that's a really important point and I think it's important to sort of help everyone keep that in perspective that recovery is hard. It's hard work, but it's going to get better mm-hmm. and it's for a good cause. Um, We try to remind patients that post-op depression is real and it has Mm -hmm. nothing to do with being transgender or gender dysphoria. It has everything to do with the anesthesia, the narcotics, Mm -hmm. just the reality of having surgery. Um, And we have to sort of guard against that and be aware of it so that we can support people through it knowing it's going to pass, it's going to be better. But the aftercare is really intense for some surgeries. For example, vaginoplasty, doing anything four times a day and you have to dilate four times a day, that's super hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard to put sunscreen on four times a day, let alone you know be by yourself and insert something into your body, which has just had surgery and it's a whole new feeling, um, a range of emotions. So 
we ask a lot of people, and I think we just have to be careful not to lose sight that yeah. it can be hard, but it's still good. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that we were just talking to Nathan about was that um, when you are about to have a surgery or you're outside of a surgery, you can't be on hormones during that time. So you're going to have that shift in yeah. hormonal balance on top of that post-operative, you know, uh, like depression, all that kind of stuff. So. Um, just preparing yourself that, hey, this will pass is very important. Having that support system is as important, if not more important than the actual surgery itself. You know, mm -hmm. one of the things that um, I remember speaking to somebody, how they were worried about a complication they had. And what I told them is you have to remember that your body is what's actually doing the most of the heavy lifting. And your job is to sort of just uh, like, direct it in the right path and say like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cause this change, but then I'm going to do everything I can to make it heal the way that, you know, the body wants to heal. So, yeah. mm -hmm. and sometimes all you have to do is just listen to your body when you're doing recovery and the big stuff happens after the surgery, not during it. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's a incredibly important point. And I think the other thing that um, people sometimes don't realize is that Surgery can also, unfortunately, stir up um, traumatic experiences mm -hmm. from the past. Yeah. And just being aware of that and ha making sure that you have somebody who you can talk to about it. Again, it's not gatekeeping. It's not for gender dysphoria. It's really just having a therapist or um, someone that you've seen in the past who is a an unbiased, nonpartisan safe sounding board to work through the feelings, emotions that you're having. Yeah, I, I mean, it's funny that you brought that up because I was just talking to Shane about how um, it's almost like clockwork for me after every surgery, after it's always the first post-operative visit I go and have a panic attack and I almost pass out. Happens every single time. And I remember <laughs> you telling me, like, do you go to a therapist? I'm like, yes, I do. I haven't seen her in a while. Mm -hmm. I'm freaking out, you know? And then it wasn't until like the second and third surgery where I realized, okay, I know what this is. I know how to handle this. I'm not passing out for any other reason other than it's just my brain freaking out. Let's mm -hmm. calm down, breathe and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So. Yeah. I definitely had a way tougher experience with top surgery than I did with phalloplasty because I knew what to expect. And I knew that I usually go through bouts of post-op depression and then I was engrossed in the healing process. So I wasn't so much focused on like my emotions as I was like the physical healing. Yeah. yeah it's, I mean, some trans people go through a lot of different surgeries. So you learn through the whole process. And yeah. some of those can be not the actual act of cutting or the physical trauma, but there can be emotional components mm -hmm. that are brushed under the rug or... Yeah. Do you have a favorite surgery to perform? I've sort of focused now on just masculinization, feminization, and then phalloplasty mm -hmm. and vaginoplasty. And I think doing the same thing every day, I would pull my hair out. So mm -hmm. I love the variety. Mm -hmm. It's enough volume to keep my skills going. I do believe in the 10,000 hour rule, but um, at the same time, a little bit of variety is good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Shifting gears just a little bit, what are some of the favorite things you like to do outside of work? Do you have any um, hobbies or uh, how do you manage being so busy? Like, what do you do for self-care? 
Um, well, so I have a four-year-old daughter, and we, having moved to New York two years ago, um, the weekends are usually spent with her and exploring new parts of the city and doing things together. She comes with me on the weekends to round in the morning, <laughs> and yeah. then uh, we have a little routine, go for coffee, get breakfast, go see patients, and then do something that's fun for her. So sure. that's sort of where my life mm-hmm. is now. Yeah. Friends of mine who are also patients, we like to joke that you like never sleep because you're constantly <laughs> answering our emails. Um, so it's nice to know that you have time where you're you're actually able to spend it with your family. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned that you have a child. How does having a child like impact your career? I think I was fortunate that I don't think that it was a huge setback in terms of productivity or um, advancement. I think as a parent, you know, certainly taking care of youth, I can relate to parents um, who have a child who's going through surgery and sort of understanding that you know it's necessary, you want this for them, but you're still anxious that you've turned their well-being over to someone else and to a stranger. You worry about your child being bullied and you want the world to be a kind and accepting and safe place. And so Mm -hmm. I think you're very aware of making sure that you create environments that are affirming, welcoming, and safe. She's also super adorable. (laughs) Super adorable. She Um, likes to chat. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, definitely. So how does working in gender-affirming surgery with trans people every day affect how you are raising your child? It's interesting. Um, We, she is sort of at an age where she's beginning to understand gender. Um, and I guess beginning to question her on, she will say, so-and-so is a boy. And I'll say, well, how do you know they're a boy? Mm-hmm. Like, what makes them a boy? Or being careful to, you know, those aren't girls' toys or boys' toys. She had, for example, she had friends over, and a little girl and a little boy were over. And she said, we don't have costumes for the little boy, for my friend who's a little boy. And I said, why not? Mm-hmm. He can wear the same costumes that you can. And I guess, you know, she had heard somewhere along the way that, yeah. like, these were costumes for mm-hmm. girls. So trying to debunk that, to read books that are inclusive and sort of challenge mm-hmm. your mind about traditional gender roles, gender stereotypes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, we were we were talking about it to Nathan about mm-hmm. how he's raising his child, yeah. And I think for for people who are working with trans people, or if they are part of the community, or you know, working within the community, and then you have a child, and when you have a child, they're going out to like school and they're with friends and other families, and then they're being exposed to ideas that you, you know, are maybe trying to shield them from, or you're trying to give them other ideas. So it's like. It must be really interesting to experience that, especially working in this field. Um, yeah. Well, like you said, you can't. It's on. It's on the playground. Mm-hmm. You yeah. don't. It's maybe somebody's older sibling. It mm-hmm. can be another a, a caregiver, somebody else's caregiver. 
you can pick the school that your child goes to, the environment that you live in, who that your friends are. But they, as you point out, Jane, they're going to be exposed to yeah. many, many people mm-hmm. that will influence them or say something that they latch on to mm-hmm. in a mm-hmm. way you didn't expect. Yeah. yeah. But it's nice at least you can, you're can. you not reinforcing that. You're trying to, to put... Yeah you know, what I would say are better ideas in her in her head. Yeah, yeah. it's important to create that safe space for your child to be able to explore without having any type of repercussions or fears, you know, mm-hmm. because that's, I think one of the hardest things about being a child and exploring who you are is the fear of rejection, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So just trying to create that environment is really super important. Mm-hmm. Okay, so where do you see yourself in the future? Gosh, I don't know. I never saw myself moving to New York City two years ago. So I think that after that big move and now feeling like New York is home after being in Baltimore for 17 years, it actually honestly becomes harder to envision the future just because I would have never envisioned this and I would have never envisioned um, our program growing. And I mean, we have hopes for... I have no intentions of leaving New York. I love my job. I love our team. I hope to be able to continue to grow it and to grow our program. But I guess who knows in mm-hmm. 17 years yeah. what might yeah. where I might be. Do you have any like key points in your life that made you uh, come to New York? No. I was in Baltimore for 17 years. I did medical school there, residency. I left for a year to do fellowship in Mexico City and then came back and took a job there. And Baltimore has a bad rap, but I actually really like it. And it yeah. became home, and I had a great network of um, friends that had become almost like family. And I liked the city um, and the vibe. So, and New York was you know, it's big, it's intimidating, it's intense, it's mm-hmm. expensive, mm-hmm. it's, I, I, I thought, oh my, I'm pretty settled, I'm pretty comfortable to have to start over, like restart your practice, restart everything, but couldn't be happier that I did it. I certainly miss Baltimore, I miss all the amazing people, and I'm incredibly grateful for my time there, but really happy yeah here and feel like this was a great next step yeah I I feel like in general um you often do your best work when you feel the most uncomfortable yeah Mm -hmm. for me just going from one job to the next just sort of pushing yourself like I'm going to be a better person or I'm going to just do something better at this spot in my life is um really rewarding Mm -hmm. you really feel like a sense of accomplishment when you just step out of your comfort zone a little bit because I I feel like humans in general are like creatures of habit so Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I mean and also to have the opportunity to grow your practice in New York City which is such a center for so many different things um it's a really cool place to be able to like say that that's what you're doing yeah and I've been able I think to your point I've been able to find lots of interesting people where our interests and um skill sets sort of overlap Mm -hmm. um so there's the opportunity for collaboration and again growing the team in a Mm multi-specialty way yeah nathan was telling us about how you two met and how he was just like we're gonna we're gonna make this work you know i thought (laughs) Mm -hmm. that was so cool yeah yeah what has been the most memorable advice you've received hmm 
it's funny. I we're honoring my old my chairman from my residency program. So I've been thinking back on some of the messages that have been communicated during training. And so I don't know if it's a life lesson, but certainly I was thinking about some of the things that he said with regard to taking care of patients. And he always said, see your patients until they won't see you anymore. In other words, you should be following your patients incredibly closely until they are exhausted from seeing you. He also said, if you don't have complications, you're either not seeing your patients back or you're not operating. And I think obviously it's important that we really monitor our patients for complications, be them small or large. Um, stay by your patient's side when they do happen and fix them um, and address them. And then my current mentor, um, was a resident when I was a medical student and sort of the way I learned the nuts and bolts of taking care of patients. And he always reminded me to return the room and the patient to the way you found them. So making sure that if you come in and you turn on the lights and you pull the tray away and you rip down the gown, that you put the gown up, make sure the dressings are clean, give the food and tray table back and make sure that they can eat mm -hmm. and turn the lights off on your way out. But I think it's a, the overriding message is sort of a res extreme respect and gratitude to your patients. They've entrusted you and you should be um, humbled by that. Um, and also to remember that you need to continue to work to improve your outcomes and the surgeries that you're doing mm -hmm. by re-examining your techniques, whatever it is that you're doing. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because I think there is a, a bit of a stigma behind like complications, right? Just mm -hmm. that word strikes fear in mm -hmm. many people's hearts. When you think about complications, the first thing that comes to most people's minds is like complications mean that like it all went wrong. Everything's mm -hmm. like whatever we tried to accomplish, it was the complete opposite of that. Right. Um, but after speaking to so many people, a, a complication could be as small as like, oh, yeah, there's like a little bit extra scar tissue here. Let's just clean that up, you know, mm -hmm. or like you overhealed. That's a good thing. You mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. just those little things people don't even realize just because you had a little complication doesn't mean that your body is rejecting or that like this was a bad decision or like validating your fears of like, oh, I shouldn't have done this in the first place. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I usually tell people like when I'm talking to people about surgeries um, to like expect complications because then you're preparing for, I wouldn't even say the worst case scenario because complications just happen and you just have to go with them and yeah. generally they can be fixed. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Or your body heals. I mean, sometimes mm -hmm. it can be just a little bit of wound separation that with mm -hmm. a little bit of wound care, yes, it's not ideal, but it's also not life ending and you're still going to have a wonderful result and a yeah. happy life and a good quality of life and be pleased with your decision to proceed with surgery. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Do you have any advice for people who want to have a career in trans health? Be committed to the patient population, uh, committed to continuing to advance the field and to care for a still marginalized patient population. There are a lot of 
people. I think it's a hot topic and it can be interesting because it's newer and we need new minds. We need new ideas and we need the field to expand, to increase access. And I think it's just important to be sensitive to um, those things that patients have not always had a great experience with healthcare providers in particular. Um, that the surgeries are incredibly complex, that somebody's entrusting you with their body, their life, and the onus is on you to take amazing care and to improve the field. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you sort of like seeked out that type of like work that you do where you're constantly trying to sort of like raise that bar? Um. I definitely feel that in plastic surgery, one of the things that I liked about it was that there was a very black and white measure of Mm -hmm. outcome. It wasn't like in general surgery where you took out a tumor or you took out bowel and then you close the skin and you couldn't see. I really like the tangible aspect Mm -hmm. of seeing and um, seeing your results right away and Mm -hmm. seeing it as it transformed which isn't necessarily true in all aspects of medicine or even surgery. Yeah, I mean, I I still think that there is a lot of work to be done when just overall society and and media views plastic surgery, Um, because a lot of times you think of plastic surgery and you think of putting plastic in your body, whatever that means, you know, (laughs) like you're putting something foreign in your body to make yourself look look like a supermodel. Mm -hmm. Um, And... uh, this type of surgery that you do um, often falls under the radar to the general public because they just don't realize that plastic surgery can be extremely life-changing, not just aesthetically, but emotionally and like just your overall like mm-hmm. quality of life can change. Yeah. yeah. I mean, certainly I didn't realize what the breadth and depth and definition of plastic surgery was in the media, as you point out. It's there's a large focus on the cosmetic surgery aspect of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And not the reconstructive part. Yeah. Like yeah. thinking about it, I think Shane and I actually brought this up a while ago. Where we work, there's a highway that we drive down and there's a billboard. It's one of those like electronic ones. And it was like, it's a plastic surgeon's office. And they're like, you know, do you need shape? Get ready for your summer bod. You know, mm-hmm. it almost feels like an infomercial a lot of times, like how plastic surgery can be viewed to the general public, but you take it in such a different perspective in such a different way where it's not like you're selling some type of product that you own, you're sort of like honing in your like artistic ability and your like your craft, so to speak. So it's really like refreshing and it's really nice to see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my view of plastic surgery has definitely changed like completely over the past few years. So, exactly. yeah. Anyway, um, was there any other topics that you wanted to bring up or anything like that? This is good. This is mm-hmm. a very diverse uh, conversation mm-hmm. from early childhood to <laughs> yeah. career. Um, Absolutely. Love chatting with you guys. Yeah, this yeah. is fun. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for like having us here. Yeah, and we know you you're so busy. So I know. To take the time to do this. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, so again... Thank you so much. Yeah. This is so exciting. <laughs> Love that you guys are doing this. Oh, yes, thanks. Of course. Thanks for including me. Okay. Bye, guys. <laughs> Bye. Bye.